before the uh, Advent season, just leading up the first Sundays, right before Advent, began looking at this text from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 2. Then, of course, was the Advent series, then was Christmas, then was New Year. Uh, now getting back to this text for a final time this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as always, I invite you to follow along in the Scriptures uh, as I read, starting in verse 18 and then reading just the first two verses of chapter 6. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and this is quoting Isaiah, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When I trust Christ, when I receive him as my Savior and Lord, I am justified. What does that mean? That means that my record of sin and rebellion against God is blotted out. That means that I now stand pure and spotless in his sight. It means, as Paul puts it, as he writes to the Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What good news that is. What great joy that produces. What exhilarating freedom is open for us when we know Christ as our Savior and Lord, when our sins are forgiven, when our record is clear before God in heaven. That is glorious enough, but guess what? That's not all that God does for us. I am not only justified. That, if that's all God did, that would be more than sufficient. That would be joy unspeakable. But I'm also reconciled to God. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? It means I enter into a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with him. It means that he's made me his friend. We just sang about that, didn't we? It means that I am part of his family. I've been adopted into his family. I'm a well-loved son and daughter of the king. What it means is I am his and he is mine. So on the basis of the perfect finished work of Christ, there is a complete reconciliation that blossoms into eternity. In the previous two messages on this text, 
which is around the theme of reconciliation. You can't miss that in the passage. The first message that I brought was on the need for reconciliation. And we looked at the book of Genesis. We saw how Adam and Eve destroyed their relationship with God, utterly destroyed it through their disobedience and through their rebellion. And we saw that we as their descendants come into this world just as alienated from God. So God is there in his holiness, his absolute holiness, and I am in my utter sinfulness, and there is a great gulf between that I cannot bridge, not even part way. And so there is a great need for reconciliation. That was message one. The second one was on the method of reconciliation. So if the need is there, how can reconciliation happen? Well, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We talked about that several weeks ago. And because that's the case, we want nothing to do with God. Oh, we embrace the gods we invent, of course. Those gods are safe. They look a lot like us. But, but we don't want the God of the Bible. And so if there's ever going to be reconciliation between us as sinners and God, it's not a matter of each party, here's this great gulf, kind of working their way toward the middle and sort of coming together in the middle and, and each kind of goes halfway. That's not how it works. It's not us doing our part, not even the most infinitesimal amount, and then God doing his part. It is all of God's work. It is all of God's unexplainable grace and mercy and love. He made the decision out of grace and love and mercy to reconcile us to himself when we didn't know we needed it, when we didn't want it. When we were his bitter enemies, as the book of Romans points out, when we angrily resented everything about him. But what does the scripture say? God reconciled the world unto himself. That's what Paul says. Through Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, through his atoning death, through his triumphant resurrection. That is God's method of, of reconciliation. And we experience it for ourselves when we, by faith, in a personal way, receive Christ as Savior and Lord. So we focused on the need for reconciliation, the method of reconciliation. This morning, the ministry of reconciliation. If you are saved... The Spirit of God dwells in your life. Everyone who truly knows Christ as Savior has the indwelling presence of God. And all of us as believers are wonderfully different. The Holy Spirit has given us different background, training, experiences, personality, natural gifts, spiritual gifts. Each of us is wonderfully unique. He produces the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts and our lives. There is a wonderful, beautiful, great diversity in the body of Christ. But whatever our uniqueness, whatever our unique gifts and callings in life, God has commissioned each one of us, without exception, to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. We are called to be his ambassadors. You can't miss it in verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. There it is. You see, being a, being a Christian is not ultimately about showing up in a building once a week. 
Being a Christian is ultimately about seeking to glorify God in all things, which includes even the ordinary things of life. Paul says, even when you eat and drink, do all to the glory of God. So from the most ordinary things of life to what Paul talks about here in this passage, glorifying God by being directly engaged in the work of heaven, the work of reconciliation, being a witness, being an ambassador for Christ. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Gathering together regularly week in and week out, is of the utmost importance. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, do not forsake, I'm paraphrasing him, gathering together Sunday by Sunday as some are in the habit of doing. But gather together regularly and much more so as you see the second coming of Christ drawing near. Gathering together regularly on a Sunday is of utmost importance because there is a so that attached to the gathering. And you say, what do you mean by that? Let me give you some examples. We gather together on a Sunday so that our hearts and minds might be refocused on spiritual values and on the glory and grace of God. We gather together regularly on a Sunday so that we might experience His grace in a unique way. We gather together regularly on a Sunday so that we might be further grounded in the living truths of Holy Scripture. We gather together regularly on a Sunday so that we might give and receive encouragement among brothers and sisters in Christ. We gather together regularly on a Sunday so that we might be, to take our text, regularly equipped to be better ambassadors come Monday morning for Jesus Christ. Paul David Tripp, speaker and and author, uh, wrote this in one of his books. He says, the church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, Repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. And so if we have been reconciled to God, his work in our lives... God then continues to work within us and says, I want you to be one of my ambassadors so that others might be reconciled also to me. And so God has given us that great privilege and, dare I say, responsibility of being ambassadors. And so verse 20 again, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. I don't know how much clearer Paul could have said that. God making his appeal through us. So when you witness to somebody and you use the scripture, God is talking to that person through you. Not you and in and of yourself. But as you take God's word, as you give a word of testimony, God making his appeal through us. And then Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice something that's important theologically in this verse. You notice the verb is not in the active voice, grammatically speaking. You do not say to somebody, reconcile yourself. 
to God. That would be putting the sentence in the active voice. But you notice it's the passive voice, isn't it? Our call to others is be reconciled. Well, who's the one doing the action? It's not us. God is the one who reconciles us. God is the one who turns us around. God is the one who causes us to respond to his gracious invitation. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31 and verse 18, where Jeremiah makes the point that in every gospel call, within that call is the power of God's grace to bring about that which it demands. Let me show you the verse. This is from the English Standard Version. Jeremiah writes these words, speaking to the Lord, bring me back. Notice which way the reconciliation works. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. Here's the CSB version, the way it translates it. Take me back so that I can return. Isn't that a paradox? I, I thought I returned, and then God takes me back. It's the other way around. Take me back so that I can return. For you are the Lord my God. And I love the King James the best of all on this verse. Turn thou me and I shall be turned. All right, this is biblical theology. For thou art the Lord my God. So we are ambassadors. God is the one who does the turning. He's the one who does the changing. He's the one who brings back. He's the one who enables somebody to return. And so what Paul says, in the place of Christ, we call out with urgency, be reconciled to God. And why is the call urgent? Notice the very end of the text, chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says, Ephri quotes Isaiah, yeah, the day of salvation. Paul says, guess what? It's now. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the day of God's grace, Paul says. This is the day of opportunity. This is the great now of God's favor. This is the day of salvation appointed by him. And one day, so to speak, the sun will set on the great day of salvation. So while it's yet day, before the sun starts sinking below the horizon, we are called to implore people, to plead with them, to do what we can. Those who are far from God, those who are living for self, those who are lost in sin, those who are under the judgment of God, to implore them, to plead with them, be reconciled to God. You notice here in chapter 6, verse 1, there is a warning. A warning in the text to church people, to you and to me. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Sort of like the parable of the four soils, the one believes for a while and then it's gone. The grace of God sounds good. And in an outward sense, a person can readily accept it. Whether they pray a little prayer, whatever it is, they can readily accept it, but it never reaches the heart. It never reaches the heart. It doesn't transform the life. It is an empty acceptance. Which means in the end, what does Paul say? The grace of God comes to nothing in that person's life. It ends up being without result. That concerns me greatly. I have been a pastor now for over 37 years. I started year 38, September 1. And I was thinking this morning, 
Various churches I've pastored over 37, heading toward 38 years. How many sermons have I preached in nearly 38 years? How many Bible studies have I conducted? How many Sunday school classes have I taught? How many confirmation classes, week in, week out, have I led? And I started thinking about this. All right, I've been here for 13 years, a little bit more. I'm thankful for those who've come to faith in Christ. I'm thankful for those who have been stirred to follow Jesus in a greater way. I'm thankful for those whose lives have been changed. But for how many, and I don't know the answer to this, but for how many has my preaching and teaching of the gospel, calling people to turn from sin, trust Christ, live for Jesus, has it all been in vain? It's a sobering thought. One of those in church history that I am amazed at is a man by the name of Charles Simeon. I'm going to show you a portrait of him on the screen. There are the dates of his life. Charles Simeon is one of the great stalwarts of the Christian faith that I greatly admire for a number of reasons. I admire him because almost single-handedly in uh, the late 1700s into the 1800s, he almost single-handedly was responsible for great resurgence and revival in the Anglican church. He was a man deeply filled with the Spirit of God and a desire to see people, yes, church people, converted. Well, early in life, Charles Simeon was not a Christian, uh, he grew up in an aristocratic family in uh, south-central England, and his only interest was sports and raising horses. That was it. Well, in, uh, in 1779, he began his studies at King's College, Cambridge. And he was told during that first year that as a student, this being the state church and a state-sponsored institution, he would be required to attend communion services in the King's College Chapel on Easter Sunday. And that distressed him deeply. He had enough integrity to be, to be distressed by that. And as he later wrote, here are his words, he said, Satan himself was as fit to attend the sacrament as I. But it was a requirement. So what was he going to do? He, know he, could, he knew he couldn't go to the Lord's table in good conscience. And so what he did was he began to read the scriptures. He'd never really read them much before. Began to read great passages of scripture, great lengthy passages of scripture, reading devotional books. And what grabbed hold of him, interestingly in particular, was as he was reading through the law of Moses of all places, the sacrificial system grabbed his attention that by offering sacrifices rightly to the Lord, judgment could be averted. There could be forgiveness when a sacrifice is offered. And here's what he wrote in his journal. He says, what? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? 
He was struck by that. It's like, this was great in the Old Testament. Is there a sacrifice for me? Is there salvation for me? Is there hope for me, a great sinner? Well, during Holy Week, it was only a week till communion where he's required to show up. And his spiritual struggles intensified on Wednesday of Holy Week. He wrote this in his journal. He said, I have begun to hope of mercy. And he records on Thursday that hope increased. And then on Friday and Saturday, he records these words. He says, I laid my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And then his next entry, the next day, Easter Sunday, April 4th, he says, I woke early with these words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. He was converted at the age of 19. So here's a, he's a young college guy at Cambridge University. Not much of a gospel witness there. But he finished his studies, and uh, he was ordained into the Anglican Church. And at the age of 23, he was appointed as vicar of Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, a place where, when I tell you the story, you'll be surprised he ended up serving for over 50 years. Well, right from the start, he faced open hostility from the congregation. Because, of course, they didn't issue the call. The bishop says, this is where you're going. Of course, in an Episcopal system, the congregation has no say on that. So he was assigned to that church. The congregation had wanted somebody else. But the bishop hadn't given them the somebody else. They sent Charles Simeon, so they were upset to start with. And then they heard the first couple of his sermons. And they absolutely despised his conversion preaching, his evangelical preaching. So they did several things. For the first 10 years of his ministry, parishioners locked their rented pews against him. I don't know if you've seen even colonial churches on the East Coast, but the way that you'd finance the church was you'd rent a pew or a set of pews for the year. You paid pew rents. And depending on where it was in the sanctuary, the rent differed. And so it was enclosed, so you had your pew or pews, and it was enclosed by a wooden enclosure about this high, and it had a door like on the sound booth that you could lock, so when you rented it, you got the key, and that was your set of pews for the year, and then next year, then the wardens of the church would say, do you want to pay rent for the pews the next year? And if you didn't, then it'd be opened up for others to rent the seats. So many people in the congregation, it's like, we're not going to listen to that stuff, so they locked up their pew, and nobody else is going to sit here. We're not going to listen, and nobody else is going to either. And so that meant that those who wanted to listen, and as his preaching, the gospel preaching Christ, there were those that were like, I need to hear what he's saying. So they would come, they would stand in the aisles, they would stand in the back, and so Charles Simeon thought, I'm going to get some benches to set up. So one Sunday he set up benches in the aisle. They were gone the next week. The trustees threw them out. There's no way we're going to allow that. They threw out the benches. He tried to make home visitation. People wouldn't open the door, literally would not open the door for 10 years. He would knock on the door. It's like, oh, it's you. Don't want to visit. Slam the door. Close it. Something else right from the start. They refused to let him be the adult Sunday school teacher. The way that it worked in those days, you had the morning worship service, and then you'd go home for lunch, for dinner, and then you'd come back in the afternoon, uh, they called it the Sunday afternoon lecture, but it was basically adult Sunday school. 
And that wasn't under the bishop's control. That was under their control. So we can't do anything about Sunday morning, but there's no way you're teaching the adult class. And so for the first five years, they assigned the adult Bible class to somebody else. And when that person moved on, they hired somebody else for another seven years. And finally, in 1794, Simeon was finally chosen to be the adult Bible class teacher on Sunday afternoon. I can't imagine this. I've been here 13 years. I can't imagine serving a church for 12 years where people are so resistant to your preaching and leadership, they won't even let you teach a Bible class, but hire people to keep you out. Well, he battled discouragement, as you can imagine. At one point, he wrote out his resignation letter, as you can well understand. Uh, even he was associated with Cambridge University. Uh, he said, I was the object, this, he writes this in his journal, I was the object of much contempt and derision at the university. But he persevered. And what he started to do was to invite young men who were training for the pastorate to come to his quarters every Friday night. And that group continued to grow. And year after year, it was a Friday night tea that he held. These young men would come, and when they graduated from Cambridge, if you read the study of church history in the end of the 18th, uh, the 18th century into the 19th century, they went on to become powerful preachers and missionaries all the way around the world. Single-handedly, he brought revival to the Anglican church. He published a volume of 21 sermons. I have his 21 volumes in my library. I treasure it. They set the standard for preaching for the next generation. When he died in 1836, there were several obituaries that were written. And one of the stories in one of the obituaries reflects our text, where Paul says, we implore you, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the obituary tells the story about a Sunday morning service. He'd been at the church some 30-plus years. And here's what the obituary records, telling the story of this particular Sunday morning. Speaking of Charles Simeon, and after urging all his hearers to accept the proffered mercy... He reminded them that there were those present to whom he had preached Christ for more than 30 years, but they had remained indifferent to the Savior's love. And pushing this train of expostulation for some time, he at length became quite overpowered by his feeling, and he sank down in the pulpit and burst into a flood of tears. Imagine this on the Sunday morning. He said to the congregation, I've been here for 30 plus years. Some of you have not responded to the call of Christ. And as he kept making that point and expanding on it, he became so overwhelmed with emotion, he literally collapsed in the pulpit and sobs. That was Charles Simeon. Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. We beg you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. And so I want to conclude with this. Perhaps... For some of you, you've been part of a church for many years. Maybe even this church. Some of you have been here longer than I have. And you are what others might call a religious person. But your Christianity is all head knowledge. It is all theory. 
it is a collection of theological ideas divorced from personal experience, from real life. And so along with the Apostle Paul, I urge you again this Sunday, do not receive the grace of God in vain. On Christ's behalf, for his sake, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Ah, Lord. So here we are on a Sunday, yet one more Sunday. I don't suppose I said anything really new today. No, nothing startling. No big wow factor, just your word. So Lord, your word goes out week after week, month after month, year after year. Hmm. How many pastors have stood in this place, part of Grace Botno for a lot more decades than I've been here? How many gospel messages have gone out? How many calls to salvation have been issued? More than we can count. Lord, uh, the importance of now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't receive the grace of God in vain, I plead with you, Paul says. And then for us to be ambassadors, if we know the Savior, to have that same kind of urgency as we talk with people, that you open the way by life and word and testimony and whatever it is, that we might be witnesses for you. We might always be on the lookout to exalt Christ by words, by testimony, however it might be. And yes, Lord, if there's someone here, newer, older, someone who's been here recently, someone who's been here for years, in between, Lord, if there's one who has never responded personally to the call of the gospel, turned from sin, trusted in Christ, opened the heart's door, I pray, Lord, that this would be, for that person, the day of salvation. I ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.